Good morning again. If you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalms chapter 19. Psalm 19. We are, I've begun a series on church membership and uh, we started that last week. We looked a little bit about just the foundation of, of church membership and, and what it means and we used Acts chapter 2 Verse 42 is kind of the foundational verse, the, the, the launching point for this series. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it is the, at the end of the, the chapter that explains or tells us about Pentecost. Peter preached, 3,000 people respond in repentance and faith. The church grows exponentially that day, and at the end of that day, this verse 42 kind of describes how the early church began to function. And it said they devoted themselves. And we looked last week at the word devotion or commitment. And when I I mentioned that for many people, when they talk about what's the difference between somebody who just regularly attends and a church member, that was kind of the main word or the main idea that people would use, devotion or commitment. And it was the verb that we see in that that verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And so we looked at that and looked at what it meant. But the rest of this verse goes on to describe what they were devoted to, what characterized their devotion. And the next part says that the first, it was they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so that's what we're going to look at today, the apostles' teaching. Now, what does it mean when it says the apostles' teaching? Well, I, I would stand to reason that it means the Bible. It means the Word of God. When we look at the apostles' The men that, that uh, were first the disciples when Jesus was here on earth and then after he ascended, they became called apostles or the sent ones. We see that when they first started to teach, they taught the Old Testament, the scriptures of the, the, the Old Testament. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he preached. And if you look at that, it's recorded for the most part there in Acts chapter 2. He refers a lot to Old Testament scriptures. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, as he went to to take the gospel places, it said he would go in synagogues and he would reason from the scriptures. Now, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so we know that that when he's reasoning from the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't completed probably until after most of the, the, the early apostles were dead. And so... We see that even in Acts chapter 6, and we see that when there, there's a dispute in the early church, the apostles selected seven guys, or the church selected seven men to handle this dispute about food, so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so they spent time teaching the Old Testament. But as the New Testament unfolded, or as the events of the New Testament unfolded, we began to see that the apostles were starting to recognize What they were writing was on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it says this. And count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks to them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So Peter here is writing about what Paul had written. And he compares it, he says it's like other scriptures or other sacred texts. So even as the New Testament began to to, uh, unfold, the apostles began to see some of the things that they were writing as scripture. And so when we read in Acts chapter 2 verse 
42, that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, we see what they're really saying is they devoted themselves to the word of God. They devoted themselves to understanding what God's word, the revelation that he's given us. And it's the first thing listed. I don't really want to say there's a hierarchy in this verse, but it's important that this is what they focused on. It's the foundation for the early church. And so it's important for us today as we look at the idea of church membership and we gather together and in many ways here on Sunday mornings and in other capacities, the importance of the word of God in our lives. And a passage of scripture that talks about why the word of God is so important is Acts chapter 19, or sorry, Psalm chapter 19. In Psalm chapter 19 verses 7 through 11, David who wrote this, gives us this beautiful poetic picture of the word of the Lord. And I want you to stand with me this morning in honor of God's word as I read these verses. And then we look a little bit at how this this passage talking about scripture speaks to why it's so important to us today. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I I thank you for its place in my life. I thank you for the place in, in this church. It's even in our name, Cornerstone Bible Fellowship. And Lord, I pray this morning as we look at what David wrote so long ago about the importance of your word, Lord, that we would not neglect it. I ask all these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. As David writes here, this is a poem. And there are six what are called couplets here. And it says, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts, the commandment. He renames this idea of the words or, or, or the, the commands of the Lord. And then he says what they are. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. And then well, how it results in the life of those that follow the word of the Lord. It revives the soul, makes wise the simple, enlightens the eyes, and so on. And so in six different poetic ways, David writes, here's the law of the Lord or the word of God. Here's what it's like, and then here's how it affects our lives. And then in verses 10 and 11, it's kind of a verse 10, how we should desire the word in verse 11, how it works in our lives as a summary. And so as we look at these, these, this poem here that David wrote, three things that I see we, we need to mark about why in, in a church member is devoted to the Bible. First is because the church member realizes the Bible has the power to change people. The Bible has the power to change people. If we look at these descriptions here in 7 and 8 and 9, it says it revives the soul. It makes the the wise out of the simple. It enlightens the eyes. It's these words that are describing. It takes somebody, reviving the soul. It's almost breathing life into a dead soul. That the word of God is the foundation by which the Holy Spirit, when we hear the word of God, it convicts us of our sins. It makes us aware of the fact that we fall short of God's glory. And the Holy Spirit uses that to convict us so that we know that we need a Savior, so that we can understand who Jesus Christ is. 
That's why Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, you're the the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, Peter said to him, it's not flesh and blood, but the power of the Holy Spirit that revealed this to you. It's the words that Jesus spoke. And we see this here, making wise the simple. There's a sanctification process there. It it takes somebody who's, you know, okay, I respond in, in repentance to the Lord. I become a believer. And now I want to become more like Christ. I want to become more like what he's commanded of me. I want to become wise. And he says here, the word of God does that and enlightens the eyes. It is the foundation that we see. And there's two passages of scripture or two areas of scripture that highlight this in a very dramatic way. One is in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, it's the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus. If you remember, it's the day of Jesus' resurrection. He's risen from the dead, and there's these two guys walking to a town. And as they're walking to this town, they're talking back and forth about the events of the day, that this Jesus had risen from the dead, or that's, that's what they'd heard. You know, the women had gone to the tomb, and, and then the disciples had gone, and they're talking about this. And then all of a sudden, a third person shows up. The Bible tells us it's the resurrected Lord, but he is, is disguised in such a way that these two men don't know who he is. And he shows up there, and he he begins to talk with these two men, and he says, what are you talking about? What's going on? And they look at him, and they're like, you just been living under a rock? I mean, do you not know what's happened? This is the story in Jerusalem. This person, Jesus, was crucified a couple of days ago, and now his disciples, some of his followers are saying he's, he's not in the tomb, he's risen from the dead. I mean, this is the talk. And Jesus does something at this point that that's... Well, interesting. In, the, in verses 25, 26, and 27, it records his response. Jesus says to him this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, after these guys are talking about what's going on, he looks at them and says, listen, you guys, you don't get it. And then it says he goes all the way back to Moses, which is a biblical way of saying he goes back to the very beginning. He goes back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And from that point, through Adam and Eve, the flood, the fall, through, the, through Moses and, and David and all of the events of the Old Testament and the prophecies, he begins to explain who he is and why this had to happen and why, how the Old Testament pointed to his ministry. Now, why this is, 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 is important for our point today is this. They didn't recognize who Jesus was. Now, me personally, and this is just my pragmatic way of thinking, if I was Jesus in this point, and these two guys are discussing the events of the day, and, and, and I'm there, I'm Jesus, at that point, I may have thought, you know what? Take the mask off. Here I am. I'm the guy that you're talking about. I did rise from the dead. Look, look at my hands. I'm here. You've experienced me. And now he does eventually reveal himself, but the moment he reveals himself, he he disappears. But before he does that, before he says who he is, what does he do with these two men? He goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to the word of God and establishes from the word of God why he came, why he had to die, why he had to rise from the dead. He wanted their understanding of his ministry and who he is to be based on the word of God, not just some experience on this road. In much the same way, Peter, in the the book that he wrote, 2 Peter, he writes this in verses 17 and 18. 
He said this, for when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is writing to this group of Christians, and he's talking about an experience he had with Jesus on what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were on this mountain with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, Jesus becomes, it says he's transfigured. His, his outfit becomes so bright, you can't take it. It's so, it, it just the experience is overwhelming. Moses and Elijah are there, and, and Peter, James, and John are kind of overwhelmed, and then they hear this this booming voice, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, this is a mountaintop experience if ever there was one. And Peter experienced it. But in the very next verse, verse 19, Peter writes this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now that's kind of a choppy Greek sentence, but what he's really saying there is we have something even more important than that mountaintop experience. That's the word of God. That's the Bible. In other words, Peter had this great experience, something that probably could stay with him, for, it does stay with him for the rest of his life. I'm sure after he denied Christ in the time before Jesus met him on the beach there, that's recorded in John 20, and he was thinking of, I denied Christ, but I had that mountaintop experience. He had something that probably you and I have never come close to experiencing. But he said, listen, that's not what I base my faith on. That's not what I base my belief in Christ on. I base it on the word of God. So why is this so important to us? Why is this such a foundational thing to the early church and it needs to be so today? One of the things that I've, I've kind of witnessed over the past few years or the years of my ministry is the danger of basing our faith on emotion, an emotional response. I, I think of even music. You know, sometimes I'll hear people, they'll leave the church service that day and they'll say, you know, we had a great worship experience today. And a lot of times what they mean is we sang songs that I liked today. I really enjoyed the music today. And there's nothing wrong with that. I played the guitar, I've led music before and then played the drums and different things. But what I gather sometimes is people can become dependent upon emotional response and I mean, you can manipulate music to get people to have an emotional response. Anybody that's a musician in here, and I don't mean to give you a musical lesson here, you can, there's a chord progression you play when you do things that kind of builds to a, a climactic point, makes you want to stand up. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can have the same type of response at the Verizon Center when you have some rock and roll, heavy metal, death metal band or whatever it is. You can do that. And if you're... <laughs> excitement is just based on your response to music, you got to be very careful because you can go down bad paths when it's just emotion and not the sure truth of the word of God. As a pastor, when I was looking to, to leave the church I was at before I came to Cornerstone, I, was at a, I looked at a number of churches, and one of the things that I was amazed by is how many churches have renamed their Sunday morning worship service. It's not just the Sunday morning worship service or the AM worship service. It's the encounter. Or the experience. Or elevate. Or is it ease. I don't know what it was with the ease. But there's lots of names. and there's, That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's the idea that we're going to come here and have this superimposed Holy Ghost experience. One church that I even looked at, they talked about how sometimes in their services they never even get to the preaching. That's dangerous. It's dangerous to not get to the word of God. 
Because when our faith is based on just an emotional response and nothing else, it's easy to fall into heresy. It's easy to fall in apostasy, to walk away and to believe things that aren't true. I have people that will come to me and they'll say things like, you know, I know God is, is blessing my relationship with my, my girlfriend. I mean, we're, we're living together and we're not married, but I know he's blessing it because things are going so good. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm glad things are going good, but no, the truth of the word of God, wouldn't, you wouldn't see it that way. And so why we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to know what God wanted them to do. They knew that the word of God would revive their soul. It makes the wise the simple. It lightens the eyes. And so my challenge, there's nothing wrong with emotion. I like when people are emotional. I've been up here before, and sometimes when you look at the faces during the music, you like little, little smiles would help sometimes. Get a little emotional. But also base your belief on the foundation of the word of God. Point number two, the Bible has the power to bring joy. If you look there in, in verse 8, it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Oftentimes when we think of obeying a command, joy is not the, the idea. We're like, well, we have to do it or we're supposed to do it. I don't want to get in trouble. But I don't often associate somebody giving me a list of commands or things to do or precepts as, as joyful. In our culture, we actually live the opposite way. Any type of restraint put on anybody is often looked at as as the worst possible thing, the key to joy and happiness is no restraint. Do whatever you can possibly do and get away with it. But here the psalmist, David says, the precepts of the Lord are right and they rejoice the heart. They make us glad. Well, how does the word of God make us glad? Let me give you an illustration that might help. I want you to imagine for a moment in your, your mind somebody you'd really like to meet. They may be alive, they may not be alive, doesn't matter. Just pick somebody that in history or right now that you'd like to meet. Don't overthink it, just, okay, you got somebody? Now just imagine if somebody came to you today and said, hey, this person is here. This person wants to meet you. They want to, you know, they're, they're open for you to come sit down and talk to them. But here's the thing. All you know is that this person is somewhere in Little Rock, just somewhere. Somewhere in Pulaski County. That's it. That's the only information you've got. Now, how would you go about trying to find them? I mean, maybe it's a, a, a politician. Maybe it's George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or somebody like that that you would like to meet. And you go, maybe they're, it is the state capitol. Maybe they're down there at the, at the building there. Maybe it's a, a musician. So you're thinking music stores or something like that. You're, you're, you drive around. Maybe you're looking for long lines because it's a really famous person and other people would be there. Or who knows? You're, you're trying your best to figure out how would I find this person? But then imagine somebody comes up to you and says, hey, here you go. And you look down and it's a map. And on the map it says this person is here with a big X. Would you be happy? Would you be like, hey, this helps? Of course you would. I mean, yes, you still got to get there. You still got to, you know, drive, take the bus, whatever it is you, you need to to get there. But here you have the information you need to get to this person. Well, the Bible makes it clear, if you read Romans chapter 1, that general revelation, just the world that we live in, there's enough information for people to know there's a God. People that, you know, most people, there's a few atheists, but I think they've got other problems but most people just living in this world looking at the planets looking at everything and how it works they go i have enough information to know there's a god and i'd like to have a relationship i'd like to meet this god but how do i do it 
And they try everything. It's like driving all around trying to find a person. They try it through different religions. They try it through a, a different what, their jobs, maybe worshiping their family. Maybe it's, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Who knows? But they try all of these things to fill this emptiness, this purpose, to try and seek out, why am I here? And David says here, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. He says, here's the map. Here's how you get to know God. He's given us his word. He's given us who he is. Jesus said something very important to his disciples. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to the Father. Told his disciples, if you know me, you know the Father. And he said, how do we know Christ? We know him through his word. We read about him. We read who he is. The words of God, as we'll talk about in just a moment, they go into our heart. They change who we are. As, as Hebrews says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It opens up who we are, and God reveals himself to us. Discovered in my life, as, I, as the word of God becomes more real to me, I understand it more. I'm changed by the Bible. I don't try and change it. I'm happier. I'm more joyful. My life makes more sense, even when things aren't going right. I don't get too far off track. So the Bible has the power to bring joy. The third and final point of why church members are devoted to the Bible is because the Bible has the power to endure. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The Bible is old. The, the, the newest part of the Bible is 2,000 years old, give or take. It's probably the book of Revelation written between 80 or 90 or 100 A.D., and there are those that make the, the, the pronouncement to people and they say, you know, how does the Bible speak to some of the things that we deal with today when it's so old? I mean, there's certain things we've had some, some major discoveries over the past couple hundred years. I mean, we have electricity now. We have television sets. We have the Internet. We can travel all around the world. We have all sorts of reproductive things that we can do now that we couldn't do. How does the Bible speak to some of these issues? I have a buddy of mine, he's, he's gone back to school, he's going to school somewhere over in England to try and get his doctorate, and his, his entire doctorate is on sex bots, robots. And when he told me about this, I was like, all right, man, that's whatever floats your boat there. But he was talking, he's a guy in ministry, and he says, listen, this is going to be a big thing. He says, man, in the next five to ten years, this is something you're going to have to deal with in your church you're going to have to deal with with your kids. Your, your, I mean, it's, it's a thing that's coming up. Whether you like it or not, it will be here. And he said, listen, man, the church has to have a response. We have to. And I was like, well, thanks for that cheery bit of news. It made me think of a, a passage in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of my, my favorite books because I think it speaks so much to our culture today. The guy who wrote Ecclesiastes, Solomon, was rich beyond his, anybody's wildest dreams. He had the, the best of it. And it's a book about really exploring what is life like when you really have everything you could possibly want. And as much as we might bemoan where we are as a society, most of us have things that people 50, 100 years ago could only dream of. We have ample food. We have air conditioning. And the complaints that we have are so trivial compared to what most people face. And this book talks about how to make sense of it all. Well, one of the things that Solomon wrote in there is there's nothing new under the sun. You guys ever read that or ever hear that phrase? There's nothing new 
under the sun. And it makes me think, well, what is, I mean, is he right? I mean, the internet wasn't invented. They didn't have television sets or sex bots or anything like that. How can he write that? Well, the truth is, is because what he's talking about when he said there's nothing new under the sun is this, that human nature and the nature of God doesn't change. When Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the heart of man, all we've really done over the past 6,000 years since that happened is come up with newer and bigger ways to sin. All of those little inventions that we've done, I mean, they can be used for good or they can be used for bad, but the nature of humanity doesn't change. There is evil, there's greed, there's lust, there's coveting, there's also bravery, there's also self-sacrifice, all of the things that have been around forever. Yes, we come up with new ways of doing things, but the nature of who we are and the nature of what we need hasn't changed. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes can say, really, there's nothing new under the sun. We're still sinners in need of a savior. The word of God 2,000 years ago spoke to the issues of the day. And 2,000 years later, as we live here today in 2018, it speaks directly to the issues that we face. It'll be there forever. So the Bible has the power to change people, to bring joy, the power to endure. And then David writes a couple of things here as we kind of bring it to a close. He says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. He talks about the desire then for the word of God. If it does all of these things, if it is the power to change people, to bring joy, to endure, if it is the power of of the foundation of our faith, then what should be our desire for it? Well, he uses two ideas. He says, you know, it's like gold and like honey, the delicacies of life. It should be of utmost importance. So let me ask you a question this morning, and this isn't to make you feel bad or anything. It's just an honest question. To look at your life and look at the way you've been living, how would you describe your desire for God's word? What, how would you rank it? Let's just say one means I, I don't care at all. Five means I can't get enough. Where would you put yourself on that scale? It's just something to ponder for a minute because of what David writes here about how important it should be to our life. So how do we incorporate the word of God more into our life? Well, a few weeks ago, I was at the men's prayer time. We have a little brief devotional at the beginning, and and Walt Delp shared something from the Navigators that I thought was great, and I wanted to share it with you. And it's something they used. It's basically based on a a hand, all right? And it may be on the screen. If not, you can just follow along. Five different ways that we approach the word of God, all right? So you look at your hand for a minute. You know, I won't make fun of you for all staring at you. Just look at your hand for a second, okay? Your pinky. Your pinky would be like hearing the word of God. The pinky is your, your weakest finger, isn't it? I mean, it, it's down there. It, you whack it with a hammer sometimes, whatever. But it doesn't do a whole lot, but there it is. Hearing the word of God is kind of like what you're doing right now. Somebody else speaks and you listen. And that's great. That's good. But the, most people say we retain about 5% of what we hear. And as a pastor who sometimes asks people on Sunday afternoon, hey, what did you think of the sermon this morning? And they're like, uh. What was, what was it about again? You're like, eh, it's just about right. I can relate to that one. So there's hearing. Then you move on to the ring finger. The ring finger would be reading. You like reading it. That would be, you know, you sit down and some people have a, a, a plan to read through the Bible in a year. Maybe they read a chapter or two a day. And really, that's they read it. When they're done, they close it up. Okay, they've read it. And, and we retain a little bit more of what we read, maybe around 15% of what we read. And that's, that's fine. That's a good thing to have in your life. 
When you get to the middle finger, it would be like studying, studying the word of God. That would be similar to kind of what I do before I prepare to preach. I, I sit down, I read through a passage of scripture. I may look up what some of the words mean that I don't, you know, maybe are confused about. So I might find out about the history. Who wrote this passage? Who was it originally to? Is it prophecy? You know, I might get a little more in depth than most, but you're studying the word of God. You're, you're, you're learning more about it. And that's great. You learn maybe 35, 40% of that. Your middle or your index finger would be like memorization. And I, of course, you, you retain 100% of what you memorize because that's the definition of memorization. But it's taking the word of God, reading it, knowing it, and putting it in, in your heart. I have, if you look at that little thing I put in the worship guide now to take home and to go over later, one of the questions I have in there is for you to just take some time this week and, and try and recite scripture from memory. See how much see how much is stuck with you. You know, most people go, well, I know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I got one, you know, Jesus wept. You know, that's that's pretty easy for most people. But go through it because as we memorize those things, you know, they, they, they kind of seep in. Then you get to the thumb, the final one. And the thumb, of course, is a little different than the other four, isn't it? And the thumb would be meditation. I want you to do a little experiment for me. Hold your hand out and try and touch your fingers together. Try and take your, like your ring finger and touch your index finger. It's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, you, you're like, I don't know if I'm really touching my index finger. My index finger is touching it. it it's, now try with your thumb. It's easy, isn't it? That's how meditation works with these other things. Meditating is studying the word of God, taking the word of God. When you hear it, when you read it, you study it, you memorize it, and you apply it. You get changed by it. Hebrews talks about it. It's, it's Like I said, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. One of the, and it divides us. It opens up our heart. It reveals who we really are. And when we read the Word of God, we study the Word of God, we meditate on the Word of God, it changes you. It makes you something different. God's Word doesn't come back to him void, he says. It goes out and it accomplishes what he wants it to accomplish. One of the biggest dangers we have with the Word of God is having an agenda, coming to the Bible and making it say what we want it to say. When we do these things up here, then we come to the Word of God and say, what does it teach me? How do I need to change? The early church understood that. That's why David writes in the final verse, Moreover by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Go ahead and put the last slide up there. Hopefully it has these signs on it. Good. What are these? Road signs, right? What do they indicate? What's the first one there? Hopefully there's a bridge out. You You got that. Bridge out, the second one. Means there's there's potential of deer ahead of you somewhere, you know, maybe, maybe not. And then the third one, there's just, you know, it, it's a warning, isn't it? It's a sign that you put up, and if you're paying attention, you see that you're prepared for what's coming. That's in essence what David is writing here. Your servant is warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. As we read the word of God, it teaches us and shows us what's going on in life. As we meditate on the word of God, we're prepared for what's coming, the temptations that will come, the distractions that will come. Sometimes, like the bridge being out, the, the Word of God prepares us to listen. Some things are going to happen in life that are just going to cause you to completely go in a different direction. Your life's going the wrong way. You've got to repent. You've got to turn. Sometimes it's like the deer. It's just letting you know that, hey, there may be some danger coming. It may not come. It may come. But you're prepared, aren't you? 
than the last one, the swervy road. It it's, might be a tough, you know, you got to pay attention. It's going to be swerves, ups and downs. Sometimes life is that way, and the word of God prepares you for that. But road signs only work if you see them. You know, we've all not always paid attention to the road, right? You've been busy doing this, you know, or the radio or Big Mac or whatever it is that you're, and you might miss a sign. Too many Christians miss the signs because they're not paying attention. Too many people just sit there and say, well, you know, I, I listened to a sermon this week. I'm good. I read a chapter. More to be desired are they than gold. The words of God. How much do you want them in your life? In a moment, I'm going to pray and we'll be about wrapped up. I do want to always share this at the end. I kind of hang around at the front if you want to come down and talk to me about anything. Join in the church, salvation, repentance, any of those things. But I want to leave you with that challenge to go out Study the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. Make it the foundation of your life. Hear it, read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it. 